I got it. Okay, with prayers over, let's. Is that showing? Is it starting? It looks. Um, let's start. Um, I want to do a very, very quick review to, to get us up to um, the flag of the world. Um, I want to go back to the maniac. Um, well. Um, remember that one of the arguments that um, Chesterton was making in the um, the maniac is that something's happened since the 17th and 18th century that has radically changed Western civilization and our cultures, the, the whole way we look at the world. We don't stand in the world the way people in the Middle Ages, the Christian Middle Ages, did. Um, we live in a world in which sciences direct our thoughts, they govern the way we think, and one of the postulates at the root of the scientific world is that man has no free will, that he's a product of these materialistic forces and, um, and um, in some sense he's powerless to do anything. All we can do is study these forces. Um, I'm not sure why. Um, um, I guess to better accommodate them. Um, but um, Chesterton found himself as a boy inheriting all these beliefs and all of them um, struck at everything he believed as a child and as he came to manhood he found himself wanting to take them on and that's what he does. In The Maniac, he's taking on a, a guy, a, a man named Southers, who made the claim that free will was lunacy because it meant causeless action. I'm going back to a paragraph in The Maniac. And the actions of a lunatic would be causeless. Chesterton said, I do not dwell here upon the disastrous lapse in determinist logic. Obviously, if any actions, even a lunatic's, can be causeless, determinism is done for. Um, if the chain of causation can be broken for a madman, it can be broken for a, a man, a sane man. But my purpose is to point out something more practical. It was natural, perhaps, that a modern Marxian socialist should not know anything about free will because the Marxists deny it. Freud, Darwin, Marx, all the major rationalists, the theorists who set in motion the dominant lines of thought for the 20th century, all believed that man had no free will. But it was certainly remarkable that a modern Marxian socialist should not know anything about lunatics. Mr. Southers evidently did not know anything about lunatics. The last thing that can be said of a lunatic is that his actions are causeless. If any human acts may be loosely called causeless, they are the uh, minor acts of a healthy man, whistling as he walks, slashing the grass with stick, kicking his heels. It's the happy man who does the useless thing. The sick man is not strong enough to be idle. Um, I think, uh, I mean, the point he's making here is that the more, the sicker we are, the more helpless we are, the more we give in to what's caused in our life. So we, we, we don't make the efforts to make choices or do things on our own. Um, he went on to say, 
that there was one quality that seemed to dominate so many of the major thinkers of the end of the 19th century. And this is a generalization that is pretty accurate. And he's talking about most of the men who were shaping the thoughts because they were all influenced by science. Um, he's trying to trace the error and he says, there is such a thing as a narrow universality. There is such a thing as a small and cramped eternity. You may see it in many modern religions. Now speaking quite externally and empirically, we may say that the strongest and most unmistakable mark of madness is this combination between a logical completeness and a spiritual contraction. The lunatic's theory explains a large number of things, but it does not explain them in a large way. And I'm trusting everybody sees that this is pretty self-evident, I think. Um, and he's saying that most the men who hold the chairs at most of the universities are marked by the same quality, this combination of a, a logical completeness and a spiritual contraction. They just don't see. There's, there's a quality of insanity that governs our age because intellectually we don't think, we don't make a place for our hearts or spiritual realities. Um, Somewhere he gives the example, and just to illustrate it, to make it concrete, he says, if you, if you ask a schizophrenic a question I mean, about, or a paranoid schizophrenic, let's say, what's wrong, um, and he'd, just, he'd say, people are after me, and you'd ask the guy to give you an example, he'd say, see that guy out there in the car, um, um, he's after me. And you say to the guy, he's not even looking at you. He would say, of course he's not looking at you. He doesn't want you to know that I know, you know. They, that is, they always have a reason. They will, they, this is the point I want to make. They will never lack a reason. Part of the problem is reason is so enclosed on itself um, that the, the answer to the problem is letting air in to break out of that because in that world it's complete and compact and coherent and logical. It's just that it's contracted, terribly contracted. Um, it's, I think it's in the next paragraph that Chesterton said, the one thing you want to do is conk the guy in the head, you know, to help him get out. Um, because as long as he stays there, he's lost. He's caught in that world. Um, one of the reasons that this was so important is that it, it has become a way of thinking for the world at large because this, the principle of determinism, that all things are determinism, underlies the sciences. Because remember, <coughs> the sciences deal with what can't be other than it is. So it's predictable. And the claim, the, the assumption is that this is true of the psyche and psyche as well, not just his body. That's why Freud would take it up and say, here are the principles governing the human psyche, the Oedipus complex or the polymorphous perverse or you know, whatever it was going to be. In Suicide of Thought, um, he was making the point that one, one of the one of the signs of the madness that he's been at pains to describe is that um, 
if if reason itself isn't grounded better than it is, it actually becomes the means of destroying itself. Um, that reason can doubt everything, um, and it can take everything away. Um, the peril is that the human intellect is free to destroy itself, just as one generation could prevent the very existence of the next generation by all entering a monastery, jumping into the sea. That was C.S. Lewis's argument with contraceptions. Um, so one set of thinkers can in some degree prevent further thinking by teaching the next generation that there's no validity to any human thought. Reason itself is a matter of faith. It's an act of faith to assert that one's thoughts have any relation to reality at all. Because you know, in a, in an elus a, delusion, in a delusionary person, he can, he can claim that reality is something when it's not. Um, um, Lewis was um, being a little bit more technical in Abolition of Man when he said, all, all reasoning processes begin with something self-evident. We've gone over this, I don't want to take time right now, but all, all thought has to begin with something self-evident. If you don't start with something self-evident, you'll keep going through things. You'll just keep seeing through them um, until finally you have no reason for believing anything at all. And the first principle of reasoning, as I'd suggested, is the principle of self-contradiction, or, uh, or of non-contradiction, sorry. Um, so thought can kill itself. A human person can use his reason to bring him point, bring himself to a point where he has no reason to live. He can use his mind to justify taking his life. Um, Chesterton is going to take that very fact on in Ethics in Elfland. So, in the first two chapters, he's looking at um, some of the qualities of the modern mind and um, the way in which those qualities have darkened our world, our culture. Um, in chapter 4 in Ethics of Elfland, what we did last night, he was making the distinction between science and using fairy tales as a contrast and saying that in science, scientists believe that there are these laws and they're fixed and determined. They're the reason that sciences can be predictable. And he goes on to say, but that's not true. Um, what all we know is that there, there's weird repetitions, that we do not know the why of things. We do not. Scientists pretend they know. But if you're, a, if you're an honest science, you know that whatever discoveries you come up with in the last hundred years will be replaced by theories, maybe even contradicted by theories in the next hundred years. I mean, that's the nature of science. But in fairyland, he says there are laws, and once they're broken, they have consequences. In the scientific world, man has no free will. In fairyland, he does. What he does matters. When he breaks a law, if, um, if he does something he's not supposed to do, there will be um, consequences. Um, hold on. There's that wonderful line um, um, in 
my book, well, it's the paragraph again. Anyone can see, see it who will simply read Grimm's fairy tales. For the pleasure of pedantry, I will call it the doctrine of conditional joy. Touchstone talked, this is a character in a Shakespeare play, Touchstone talked of much virtue in an if. According to an elfin ethics, all virtue is an if. The note of fairy utterance always is, you may live in a palace of gold and sapphires if you do not say the word cow. Then another place he says, you can live in a palace of glass and mirrors so long as he's directing that to women who are too concerned about their beauty. You can live in a palace of glass and mirrors and windows so long as you don't throw rocks. It is every everything we want rests on a condition. You may live happily with a king's daughter if you do not throw her an onion. He goes on and on and on. Remember, however, that to be breakable is not the same thing as to be perishable. Strike at a glass and it will not endure an instant. Simply do not strike and it will endure a thousand years. Such, it seemed, was the joy of man, either in Elfland or on earth. The happiness depended on not doing something. All joy rests on some condition. We will be happy so long as we do not do X. Part of the beauty of this chapter is that he's really clear that even if in Fairyland, even if you do something you're not supposed to, it can be amended. Something can happen. There can be a St. George to help us out. Remember in Cinderella, she lost her slipper and the coach, the horses, if I remember, turned into mice and things were recovered, but late. But it ended well. Um, At the very end of um, The Ethics of Elfland, he concludes, he says, Thus ends an unavoidable inadequacy, the attempt to utter the unutterable things. These are my ultimate attitudes towards life, the soil for the seeds of doctrine. These in some dark way I thought before I could write, and I felt before I could think, that we may proceed more earth easily afterwards. I will roughly re recapitulate them now, I felt in my bones, first, that this world does not explain itself. It may be a miracle with a supernatural explanation. It may be a conjuring trick with a natural explanation. But the explanation of the conjuring trick, if it's to satisfy me, will have to be better than the natural explanations I've heard. That is from sciences in the natural world. There, there are miracles. There's another reality on which ours is based. It can't be ignored. The thing is magic, true or false. Second, <coughs> I came to feel as if magic must have a meaning. <coughs> meaning must have someone to mean it. There was something personal in the world, as in a work of art. Whatever it meant, it meant violently. That is, there's, a, there's an, an artist. It didn't cause itself. There's too much purpose, there's too much beauty, there's too much order. It all suggests something extraordinary. Third, I thought this purpose beautiful in its old design in spite of its defects, such as dragons. Fourth, I think it's Ed. Um, fourth, that the prep doc, would you just, no, would you just come here? 
he's he's just saying hello. That the proper form of thanks to it is some form of humility and restraint. We should thank God for beer and burgundy by not drinking too much. We owed also an obedience to whatever made us. So the fact that we were given all of this places on us an obligation to be grateful because we didn't create it and in a spirit of gratitude showing our gratitude by restraining ourselves by not doing things and last and strangest there had come into my mind a vague and vast impression that in some way all good was a remnant to be stored and held sacred out of some primordial ruin man had saved the good as Crusoe saved his goods he had saved them from a wreck all this I felt and at the age gave me no encouragement to feel it he was absolutely alone because all the great thinkers of his time held views that were absolutely opposite to this and all this time I had not ever thought of Christian theology so the beauty of that chapter is that all of this is natural reason it's not a faith He's looking around and he's, he's using reason to show that there's something wrong in the way people look at the world. They're missing something, all of them. Um, and let me, just, let me just remind you of, in Suicide of Thought in Chapter 3, some of the dominant philosophies of his time that took that position, that there was this darkened view of the world materialism that everything's made of matter it makes no sense because all matter doesn't explain itself and all matter is not life-giving um, cut off an arm it's not going to sustain itself matter by itself can't live um, nominalism the belief that there's only particulars there are no universals if there's no universals how do we arrive at a question of justice or color or norms or the theory of progress um, that things are different um, <laughs> he laughs that one to pieces he says it's a little bit, bit like saying that what was true on Monday is not true on Friday um, tastes change but we still have standards or we wouldn't be able to make judgments about things um, and finally I think on the tendency to elevate the will. Anytime we make the will more important than reason, we undermine the will. Um, the will by itself has no basis for choosing why it wills one thing over another. Because to will one thing means we don't will other things. It's always particular. Whereas the mind can grasp universals. It can grasp the notion of justice and say it's not good to do this. The, the, the doctrine of conditional joy rests on the belief that if we're to be happy we can't do this um, the, the will can't see that the will can put it into effect but that's something only the mind can grasp so that brings us to um, the flag of the world let me let me stop now before we start in this I, I, I think probably I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm going to close in um, shortly on and just with a couple comments on the paradoxes of Christianity. I, Mark, I had you particularly on my on my mind, but all of us. I think the I said to everybody, you you weren't here yet, but 
I said that I think chapter 6, The Paradox of Christianity, is one of the finest in the book um, because he reveals the heart of Christianity um, not as a theologian. He's not dealing with abstract context, concepts. He's, he's dealing with actual experiences and showing something was wrong. And the more he looked at it, the more it revealed the mysteries of Christianity, the, 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 the rationality the resources of rationality in Christianity. I, I just think it's a remarkable chapter. But I, I'm just going to end with a note on that. I don't want to take it up tonight because it's too much. So we'll, we'll look at the flag of the world, but anybody, any questions before we take up the flag on any of the chapters up to this point? The Maniac, The Suicide of Thought, Ethics of Elfland? I, I just struggle in some of those, like Flag of the World was easier for me, and the one on Christianity was easier for me to comprehend. There's still some things, and I don't know if it's because I don't, and some of it, when he starts talking about the will and the reason, I said, he starts to lose me. That's yeah. just a bunch of philosophical, just blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. Yeah, Send yeah. me some concrete stuff, and I'm happy. Um, but... So, so it, it, it's it's sometimes very some of the things are, are wonderful, but they're hard to follow for me in some of these. Yeah, um, you know, I'll underline a bunch of stuff in here, and I'm like, okay, because I think sometimes what he is to, like he uses the word creed in one of these and talks about it a lot, and I think he means something different than I think about it when I think about a creed. Nope. Right. Nope. Because. The only creed anybody uses anymore is if you're Catholic and you say the Apostles' Creed, then I see a creed. Nobody else uses a creed. Yeah. And so, I, so there's something I think about maybe his. I'm, I'm assuming anyway that about his times, early 1900s. No, really. Thought about certain things differently. Yeah. No. Nope. 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 Well, then I'm not. Then then, I, then I'm struggling because I'm, I'm seeing it's like it doesn't make any sense to yeah. me. Yeah. Well, wait. Hold on. Let me if I can try to cut through some of the tangle there. It doesn't, it doesn't, because you've said Flag of the World is a little bit easier and, and Paradoxes of Christianity, and yeah, yes, 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 so hold on to that, that's a good. Um, and I don't want to lose this encouragement, Mark. Go back to read, um, I've read Chesterton a number of times. He gets clear with rereadings. I mean, finish the book, put it down, you know, three months from now, go back and pick it up again because it's going to make more sense to you then. You will have struggled through things. So, and, I, and I, I have no doubts about that, Mark. I mean, you may still trip over things, but he'll get clear in time. Um, the second thing is, he, he does not mean anything different, particularly in his use of creed. Because if you've read him long enough, no matter where you read him, one of, one of the things he's saying, and it's, it's fundamental, is that the, the modern world is... Un, would, would like to pretend that dogmas are bad, that you can believe whatever you want, be a free thinker, that we can't explain the world, the world is chaotic, um, nothing makes sense, so do whatever you want. He, he takes the position from the beginning that there is a creed, there is a dogma, and it's only on the basis of that that we can find any meaning in life. And let me just take a second with that. So when he says creed, and, and in the early chapters, clearly, he's doing everything he can um, to um, be careful of a non-Christian audience. Let me just put it as nicely as I can. 
He's not afraid to offend people. He speaks the truth, but he is so charitable, so courteous in what he does. But he's very honest. He takes on George Bernard Shaw. He is very critical of him, but he loves the man. I mean, he's, they're good friends, but he, he will call a spade a spade. It's just the way he is. But he never does it in a crude or mindless way. His mind is too good. His heart is too good. When he uses the word creed, he knows exactly what he's doing. When he uses the word dogma or doctrine, like he uses the doctrine of the conditional joy, he's making clear that there are certain conditions and it's important to see them. And it's one of his positions in answering the main lines of his time because the main lines are materialist. It's only matter that explains things. There's, um, hold on. Um, I don't know what to do with this. Um, um, so creed doesn't have a different meaning market. It, it's the same. Um, he what he's he he hasn't converted Christianity yet. But remember the 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 the, the end of that chapter. I think it's Elf, Ethics of Elfland that I read last time. Um, and I in fact I just read it a minute ago. Yeah, this is the end of Elf um, the Elf. Chapter. All this I felt and age gave me no encouragement to feel it. And all this time I had not even thought of Christian theology. He's doing everything he can. I mean, stop and think about it. Flag of the world, ethics of Elfland, suicide of thought, the maniac. Those are all modern terms. Not, not a hint of a Christian theology anywhere in them. He is trying to deal with rational disorders because none of these men who are the major thinkers at that time are dealing directly with Christianity, they've got all these intellectual, rational theories. He's using reason to answer them, not Christianity. Um, so even though he's using images or metaphors like fairyland, all of his arguments are rationally structured. That's why I gave you guys those enthymemes at the very beginning of things for you to look at, because he's, he's a master of making arguments. Um, Mark, don't let the the fact that there's a lot about the... By the way, this is not the 19th century. It's, it's the beginning of the 20th century. He, um, it's the, the thinkers at the end of the 19th century that set all of this in motion. It gave rise to all these men who wrote all these influential books. Don't let the fact that you don't know any of these keep you from dealing with the arguments. So when he's dealing with the will, even if it's confusing... Stay with it, go back. It will, it will clear up. It will clear up, I promise. You've got too good a mind. You're not gonna, that's not gonna go escape you. It just will not. Let's do um, Flag of the World. Um, I want to read the opening because I, I thought I'd love the So he's just made the argument that there's a difference between what goes on in Elfland. It's really interesting because what goes on in Elfland or Fairyland is a metaphor where... Here, I, let me, I've not said this before, but let me say it now because I, I hope it helps. If you look at the major philosophies, the major lines of thought in the 19th and 20th century, they're all deterministic. 
they rest on the belief that science can control everything. Um, it deals with what can't be other than it is. There's a great contradiction at the center of science because science says we're the product of forces over which we have no control, and yet they're trying to learn what can't be different from it is so they can control it, they can predict it. That's the fundamental contradiction at the heart of, at the heart of science. But all of the men base their theories on sciences, and they believe that man had no free will. Um, Chesterton is using fairyland as a metaphor. Wait, no. Chesterton's losing, using fairyland because he loves it, the way I do. I mean, stories. Because, like Christ's parables, every one of the fairyland Grimm's fairy tales shows a moral spiritual truth. So it's like a parable. Um, so you can enjoy it the way we enjoy Christ's parables, except they're not faith-driven. They're the natural world-driven. Something magical and miraculous is going on in the world, and all fairy stories deal with it. A dragon, a Saint George who can defeat a dragon. But in so, while he looks at um, fairy stories, and takes them as they are in themselves, they're also, in a sense, here's what I want you to get, they're also, in a sense, a metaphor for the reality that science won't get to. So it's like a filter that it's showing you a part of the world that gets cut off from science, because remember, science has got this very logical, consistent view, but it's very contracted. There's a, there's a lot it leaves out. Remember, those are his lines, the lines that I started with, right? You guys remember? Are you all with me? So, um, it's like an intellectual amputation. This combination between a logical completeness and a spiritual contraction. The modern scientific mind is characterized by this, that combination of those two things. Um, this contraction, this spiritual contraction. There's a logical completeness to everything it does. It's very coherent, but it's too narrow. It, it leaves a lot out. What I'm saying right now is Chesterton loves fairy tales because they're good, they're enjoyable, but also because they're an image of, of that part of the world that the scientist leaves out. That when you break a law, um, 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 something will happen to you. And um, in, in terms of, let's, let's say you drink too much or you've had an affair or something, you know, Something will happen to your soul. And what goes on in fairyland makes that clear. That when a law is broken, when you are, when Cinderella doesn't get home on time, you know, her coach turns into a pumpkin, I think, and the horses into mice, and that things happen, it changes the world. So it presents a, a world in which we're left with a sense there's something inexplicable, inscrutable, magical, that the scientific world can't get to. Um,
So um, we end at Ethics of Elfland with this sense that there are two worldviews. There's a lot that science can help us to see, but there's a danger in taking it too far at the expense of other things. That's his argument. In The Flag of the World, he begins um, by saying that there are these two people walking around the world. <laughs> Let me read it because I think it's wonderful. Because what he's going to do now is say that basically there are two ways of looking at the world. So he's been exploring worldviews, the way people see things, and what's wrong with them. That's fundamental to everything he's doing, what's wrong with them. When I was a boy, there were two curious men running about who were called the optimist and pessimist. I constantly used the words myself, but cheerfully confessed that I never had a very special idea of what they meant. The only thing which might be considered evident was that they could not mean what they said. For the ordinary verbal explanation was that the optimist thought his world as good as it could be, while the pessimist thought it as bad as it could be. Both these statements being obviously raving nonsense, one had to cast about for other... I hope it's clear. They both can't be right, right? Because they contradict each other. If the rule of contradiction, if that's the first rule of thought... For that's meaningless. It's like calling everything right and nothing left. It's just insane. Upon the whole, I came to the conclusion that the optimist thought everything good except the pessimist, and the pessimist thought everything bad except himself. <laughs> God, it's... It would be unfair to omit altogether from the list the mysterious but suggestive definition said to have been given by a little girl. An optimist is a man who looks after your eyes, and a pessimist is a man who looks after your feet. He talks about how positive that is, and then he says, But this is a deep mistake in the alternative of the optimist and the pessimist. The assumption of it is that a man criticizes this world. This gets to the heart of the chapter. The assumption of it is that a man criticizes this world as if he were house hunting as if he were being shown over a new suit of apartments, suite of apartments. If a man came to this world from some other world in full possession of his powers, he might discuss whether the advantage of midsummer woods made up for the disadvantage of mad dogs, just as a man looking for lodgings might balance, you know, telephone against absence of his... Right, we do that all the time. I remember after we bought our first house, I realized the mistakes we made that I didn't want to make again. So when we went house looking... Another time, I thought, this time I'm going to look at the street because we ended in our first house, we ended up on a street that turned out to be a thoroughfare between two cities, and the traffic at commute time was fatal. I mean, not, I'm not kidding. Cars were going fit. We had a family. We were starting a family. I didn't know it because when we saw the house, it was quiet and idyllic. And so when you go house hunting, you, you start looking for things and weighing one thing against another, right? He's saying, that's not so. A man belongs to this world, so this is the very beginning of the chapter, a few paragraphs in. A man belongs to this world before he begins to ask if it's nice to belong to it. He has fought for the flag and often won heroic victories for the flag long before he is ever enlisted. We belong to this world before we ask if it's nice to belong to, we're born into it. A gift is, this is the point, a gift is given to us. So the natural response is gratitude before we can ever criticize the world for what we don't like about it. Remember, there are two views now. He's 
holding next to each other, the optimist and the pessimist. To put shortly what seems the essential matter, he had a loyalty long before he had any admiration. So the instinctive, so he's not dealing with faith yet. The instinctive thing, if, if we're truthful about it, this couldn't be farther away from Freud or Marx or Darwin. Um, we're, we're given a birth. We're given life. Before we can ever admire the world or hate it, he's saying there's this instinctive gift-giving that's a part of our nature that we can't ignore. In the last chapter, it's been said that the primary feeling that this world is strange and yet attractive is best expressed in fairy tales. Because when we read fairy tales, we say it's a strange world. And yet there's something wonderful about it. Something good is going on, even with all dragons and evil people. And um, Go down in that paragraph. The world is not a lodging house at Brighton, which we are to leave because it's miserable. It's a fortress of our family with a flag flying on the turret. And the more miserable it is, the less we should leave it. The point is not that this world is too sad to love or too glad not to love. The point is that when you do love a thing, its gladness is a reason for loving it, and its sadness is a reason for loving it more. We've been given something. If things don't go well, it's more important to, to hold on to that gift that we've given and love more that thing. By the way, that's this is all pointed to Christ, and he's not even mentioned him yet. Um... Let us suppose we're confronted with a desperate thing. This is about three or four paragraphs in. Say Pimlico. I love what he does with it. If we think what is really best for Pimlico, we shall find the thread of thought leads to the throne or the mystic and the arbitrary. Follow this closely, because I want to... This, to me, in a sense, illustrates what's at the heart of it. So, when I'm done with this, I want to ask if you guys have any questions. It's not enough for a man to disapprove of Pimlico... In that case, he will merely cut his throat to move on to Chelsea. Nor certainly it's, um, it is enough for a man to approve of Pimlico, for then it will remain Pimlico, which would be awful. The only way out of it seems to be for somebody to love Pimlico, to love it with a transcendent tie and without any earthly reason. If there arose a man who loved Pimlico, then Pimlico would rise into ivory towers and golden pin pinnacles. Pimlico would attire herself as a woman does when she's loved. Her decoration is not given to hide horrible things, but to decorate things already adorable. Go down a few lines. The 18th century theories of the social contract have been exposed to much clumsy criticism in our time, insofar as they are meant that there is in the back of all historic government an idea of content, cont content and cooperation. They were demonstrably right. The principle of the social contract is, I'll do this if you do this. I won't do this if you won't do this. So it's a compromise. And he's saying that it's led, it's helped produce a degree of contentment and a spirit of cooperation. Right? That's what, so that's the, by the way, that's the form of government we have lived under for three centuries. But they were really wrong insofar as they suggested that men had ever aimed at order or ethics directly by a conscious exchange of interest. I'll do this if you do this. 
Morality did not begin by one man saying to another, I will not hit you if you do not hit me. There is no trace of such a transaction. There is a trait of both men having said, we must not hit each other in the holy place. They gained their morality by guarding their religion. They did not cultivate courage. They fought for the shrine and found that they had become courageous. That is, they fought for something beyond them, greater than themselves, that they always couldn't see, didn't understand, always couldn't explain, but giving themselves for that made them better men. They did not cultivate cleanliness. They purified themselves for the altar and found that they were clean. Now here's where I want to go because this brings it to a sharp point. He's saying that there's something wrong with both the pessimist and the optimist. And he's trying to make clear that there's something deeper, that both men fail to see something. And he make clear in time what that is. Um, the bottom, or the paragraph begins, the evil of the pessimist is then not that he chastises gods and men, but that he does not love what he chastises. He has not this primary and supernatural loyalty to things, the sense that we are born into the world. It's, it's the first instinct for us. The world is given to us before we can criticize it. He doesn't start with that. What he starts with is he darkens things. He shows a fault as if he's above it. What is the evil that a man um, commonly called the optimist? Obviously, it's felt that the optimist wishing to defend the honor of this world will defend the indefensible. He is the jingo of the universe. He will say, my cosmos right or wrong. So the optimist, so the pessimist will make everything bad. The optimist will try to whitewash. He'll make everything right. If that's the case, um, one will destroy it, the world. The other will make it all right. It'll leave it just as it is. Okay. He will be less inclined to the reform of things, more inclined to a sort of front bench official answer to all attacks, but whitewash the world. But, but he will not... He will not wash the world, but whitewash the world. All this, which is true of a type of optimist, leads us to the one really interesting point of psychology which could not be explained without it. Okay, this gets to the nitty-gritty now of where we've been going. So follow this, and then I want to take a minute and put some questions to you guys. We see that there must be a primal loyalty to life the only question is, shall it be natural or supernatural loyalty? If you like to put it so, shall it be reasonable or unreasonable loyalty? Now, the extraordinary thing is that the bad optimism, the whitewashing, the weak defense of everything, when you make everything all right, you're trying to make everything sweet and nice, comes in with a reasonable optimism. Rational optimism leads to stagnation. It is irrational optimism that leads to reform. Let me because I want you to be on the questions. Let me explain by using once more the parallel of patriotism. The man who's most likely to ruin the place he loves is exactly the man who loves it with a reason. The man who will improve the place is the man who loves it without a reason. If a man loves some feature of Pimlico, which seems unlikely, he may find himself Pimly defending that feature against Pimlico itself. But if he simply loves Pimlico itself, he may lay waste and turn it into the New Jerusalem. 
I do not deny that reform may be excessive. I only say that it's the mystic patriot who reforms. Mere jingo self-contentment is commonest among those who have some pedantic reason for their patriotism. The worst jingos do not love England, but a theory of England. If we love England for being an empire, we may overrate the success with which we rule. That is, they'll approve of their conquest of India. But if we love it only for being a nation, we can face all events, for it will be a nation even if the Hindus ruled us. Let me stop. What's he saying? Can somebody put this in simple words? He's using Pimpico as a town. It could be a person. It could be our wife, our husband, our children. What's the principle he's articulating here? Of this flag of the world. The condition? Flesh it out. Sorry, Mark, I'm not sure what you're... Is one of them, if, if, you're, if you love something conditioned because of a certain thing, it's conditional. I love it because it's pretty. I love the building because it's tall. What's it's wrong bad. with that? What's the problem? I don't know if there's anything wrong with it. I'm just trying to answer oh. the question. Um, Let me ask this before you go any further. What, what if you enter into a marriage with a prenup? Would Chesterton prove that? Depends on how much money you have and depends on how smart you are. <laughs> there's the door. Mark, there's the door. There's the door. Tracy, would Chesterton approve of a... Well, because Mark used the word condition. Would he approve of a prenup agreement? What would he say is the problem there? I mean, he's been saying that. The man who is most likely to ruin the place he loves is exactly the man who loves it with a reason, i.e. a condition. The man who will improve the place is the man who loves it without a reason, without a condition. If a man loves some feature of Pimlico, which seems unlikely, he may find himself defending that feature against Pimlico itself. But if he simply loves Pimlico itself, he may lay it waste and turn it into the new Jerusalem. What makes reform possible? So we're no longer in an optimist-pessimist world, right? We're, so we're dealing with the good and the bad, but he's saying there's something else that's needed that neither one of those positions gets to. And at the, in the paradox of Christianity, he's going to say the answer to all of this is Christianity itself, but that's later. But what's he saying now? Can anybody put it in simple words? Tracy... What's turning over in that head of yours? Can you can you offer it? I don't know. Is I don't know either. I think it it's like it, it must have something to do with. Um, I mean, dignity comes to mind, you know, and it's so uh, personal because I, you know, this place where we moved to is awful. It's a <laughs> <laughs> Good luck on your efforts to reform it. I don't know how you... So, I, I don't know. It's a little bit too close. I don't... I mean, I understand that rationally, like, what he's saying, I think, which is what you're asking. So, uh, how do you love something without loving something about it? In other words, you just love it because it is. It exists. It has a, you know, a, an existence, a spirit, a whatever. Thus, Canada, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Thus, although those who will permit their patriotism to falsify history, 
whose patriotism depends on it. That is, there are some people, we know this, there are some people, let's say, who would have defended the English line. Let's say the Tudor line. And if they did, they would have kept England as it was and not reformed it. A man who loves England for being English will not mind how she arose. But a man who loves England for being Anglo-Saxon may go against all facts for his fancy. He may end, like Carlyle, by maintaining that the Norman conquest was a Saxon conquest. He may, uh, he may end in utter unreason because he has a reason. A man who loves France for being military will palliate the army of 1970s, but a man who loves France for being France will improve the army. There's a danger on both sides of anything. Um, we can love it the wrong way and destroy it, and, or we can leave it as it is and it will stagnate because of what we do with our reason. Karen, can you, can you bring this down to any simple sense? Can you state the principle here, what he's... Uh, I guess what I took out of it was that if you love something so much that you're willing to destroy it because of your love for it, that... Um, That's what he's describing here. I don't think so. There's a remember this principle of being born into the world and having a loyal to it before we do anything, Pete. Whether we're a pessimist or optimist, you want to jump in, Doc? I, uh, what I took away was that if you love something for a reason, and that reason doesn't stand, so. A woman loses her beauty, a man loses his money, whatever it right. is, then you don't have any reason for loving them right. anymore. Right. If you love them just because you love them, then it isn't going to make any difference that she's not beautiful anymore or that he's poor. Now that's one side, and it's perfectly said. Does everybody follow what Suzanne said? So you, um, let's say you love your woman or a woman because she's beautiful, and then but at some point you realize she's older and there's something which like about her and you don't like her or she does you can leave or you know I mean so that happens all the time right we know that um, that's one side so if that's the reason you married her or or she him and that reason disappears what do you do that's a reason for walking away or that's a reason for changing that person in that direction like, like England would do by rewriting its histories to keep alive what they want to believe in, right? Which England did, and America can do. But, I'm, but the line I'm really, I mean, so, if a man loves some feature of Pimlico, which seems that he may find himself defending that feature against Pimlico himself, but if he simply loves Pimlico, he may lay it waste and turn it into the New Jerusalem. Let's say your wife's an alcoholic, Or your husband's addicted to gambling. What do you do? If you love them for a reason, today, today, the reason um, would be a grounds for divorce. People would walk away. Right? That isn't what I bargained for. Or, or you didn't meet up to your prenups, if I to go back to, that is, you didn't meet these conditions, right? It, it's, if somebody, well, never, if you set up a prenup, you're already setting up a, large possibility for a failure but but let's say your wife's an alcoholic or she has serious drinking problems 
And the reason you married her is taken away. You leave her? Or your husband's got a gambling addiction? He may find himself defending that future against Pimlico himself, but if he simply loves Pimlico, he may lay it waste and turn it into the New Jerusalem. Lots of, let's say a wife's got an alcoholic problem. Lots of men would leave. What is Chesterton saying? Let's take that marriage. Tracy, what does, jo- what does he mean by lay it waste? Just exactly that. Destroy it. Can you flesh that out? You don't destroy your wife. I mean, you don't destroy your alcoholic spouse, right? I mean, right. So, called, so flesh it out. <laughs> well, said, some of you. I mean, I can't. I can't believe we're stuck here because I, this is so much a part of our life. It's 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 a commonplace. Lots of lots of men don't leave women who are alcoholics, or lots of let's say the man's got a drug addiction. Lots of women leave. Some don't. What do those let's take them? What do those women who have a husband who's got a drug addiction problem? What do they do if they don't leave him? That helps turn him into the New Jerusalem. What happens in that marriage? It's not, it's not about the marriage. It's about the person. Because if one party to a marriage has whatever issue you want to give it, it's a, it's a horrible issue. Okay, yeah, you can leave. There are probably some things you should leave. Um, but there are also things that, you know, my mother is traditional old Catholic. If you're, you know, it was whatever happens, you stay with your spouse. Doesn't matter. You're a good, you know. But... It says more if you have a spouse that is whatever, drug problem or whatever, and you stay, you might make them better. You might not. You might bury them. You you don't know. But it says more about you and how you look at the marriage than anything that the spouse does. I don't know if it's about the place or the marriage. It's about the character of the individual. I think it's about the marriage. In the example we're using, Mark, it's about the marriage because if you didn't have a marriage... They wouldn't be dealing with the situation. Just I want to I want to quote this line again. Ob- what is the evil of the man commonly called the optimist? Obviously, it's felt that the optimist, wishing to defend the honor of this world, would defend the indefensible. He is the jingo of the universe. He will say, "My cosmos right or wrong. I'm going to stay with her. I'm my, he's my brother. He's got my back. I've got his back, right or wrong." Is Chesterton approving of that? So is he saying you point out to the person? You tell the person you're wrong. You know, and? You're there as a conscience. You're there as the mirror of conscience, you know, to say the hard things. But, you know, the thing is, this is a weird example because, you know, uh, I have dated a drug addict before, and you, I realized you cannot change them. They have to change themselves. And so if you stay with them, you're enabling because you're feeding them and giving them a place to live and all this kind of stuff, and so then they can do their drugs, right? So you can tell them this is wrong, but they have to listen to you, and at that point, if they're not, you have to leave. Okay, let's... So it's a bad example, I think. I I don't think so. Here, let's stay with it. No, let's stay with it for a second if we can. Um, Is Chesterton saying that 
telling somebody is sufficient in itself? Because he uses the word lay waste. Because you can tell somebody, let's all, let's get real here for a minute. You can tell somebody that they're wrong. Does saying some is saying something enough to change it? And I right now I don't want to get into the philosophy whether they have to do it themselves or I mean you get into rehab programs and of of course somebody at some point has got to take responsibility for his or her addiction whatever it is or won't get changed. But the question we're dealing with right now is what Chesterton is talking about when he says laying waste to Pimlico. Suzanne was, I think, right on in one sense where she says, if you love them for a reason, that reason's gone, you know, um, then your love is gone. And, but in that case, you've just left it. You can divorce, but you've left the problem as it was, still there. He's setting up and saying, um, you've, the question he asked... Question. The example is better, Robert. Stick with that. No, I'm staying. No, Suzanne. Just the question he asked was: um, We say there must be a primal a primal loyalty to life. The only question is: Shall it be natural or supernatural loyalty? Now, hold. On, I'm going to go back because we're we're getting on really touchy ground here. So I'm glad we're staying with this and we're staying with marriage. You guys may not be here next week, but. Remember that, that the supernatural virtues from God, we've gone over this before, the supernatural virtues from God are faith, hope, and charity. Chesterton says this really clearly, not here, but I, I'm not sure where, but the supernatural virtues mean you have faith when there's no longer a reason for having faith. You love somebody when there's no longer a reason for loving them. You have hope in something where there's no longer a reason for hoping. Because that's what those virtues mean. Because if you if you love somebody for that reason, we've just gone through that, and that reason is taken away, what happens? That's why love in the Catholic Church is a sacrament. It ties us with Christ. When he loved us, when there was no reason, we were fallen. We didn't deserve his love. The argument that Chesterton's making here, none of it's in Catholic terms. It has nothing to do with theology. He's, do, he's doing this purely naturally, except at this one point he asked this question, the one that I just put. We say there must be a primal loyalty to life. The only question is, shall it be natural or supernatural loyalty? And then he uses this example of Pimlico. And England, if you love it for the wrong reason. And he's already said... Um, the evil of the pessimist, then, is not that he chastises gods and men, that is, he says, you're wrong, that's a bad thing, but that he does not love what he chastises, because if he loves it, as he's saying, with a supernatural love, he's not going to stop loving when that person's bad. But, to take um, Tracy's point, the problem is, if you just do nothing or say, change and he doesn't change, then you're enabling. Yes, Chester would agree. So what do you do if we're dealing with human weaknesses or addictions, drug, alcohol, pornography, adultery, I mean, what you find it. I will not, wait, sorry, I will not hit you if you don't, there's no trace of that. There is a trace of both having said, we must not hit each other in the holy place. They gain their morality, they garden their religion. They did not cultivate courage they fought for the shrine and found that they had become courageous. 
The man who is most likely to ruin the place he loves is exactly the man who loves it with a reason. So if a, let's say a, um, a husband has a wife who's alcoholic and he keeps saying to himself, she's the most gracious person I ever met. She's an alcoholic. And, and to use your term, I, I'm trying to be as brief as I can here. So he enables and she remains an alcoholic all of her life. That's one possibility he's talking about here. The one who's most likely to ruin the place he loves is exactly the man who loves it with a reason. The man who will improve the place is the man who loves it without a reason. Would today happen to be the feast day of St. Francis at our church, so it was a feast day. You know that St. Francis gave up everything in life, absolutely everything. He embraced poverty, gave up everything, and loved Christ. He even experienced the stigmata. He gave up everything. He loved things without a reason. Whatever came his way, he loved. We live in a world that makes everything conditioned on reasons. I will love you if you do this. I will love you if you do that. I won't do this. Chesterton's posing this question. If you love somebody for a reason, you're, you're the one most likely to ruin here. But if he simply loves Pimlico itself, he may lay waste and turn it into the New Jerusalem. What do, can any reformer, let's say it's a church, reform a church, or a city, or a country, can any reformer really reform if he doesn't take on the corruptions and overcome them? And to go back to my earlier statement, can he do that in a way that's just and still in charity? How does one be, let's put it back to my example, how does one, how is one just to a wife who's an alcoholic and, um, and still love her in charity to help her get out of that? Because it, it will mean at some point, well, I mean, this is what tough love programs are all about. It will mean doing hard things with her she's not going to like. That's what they do in rehab programs. People can run from them. Um, but anybody who stays knows that they're not going to change unless they seriously change some not good things. So all of this is predicated on this fundamental loyalty to the world that we, we did not we did do nothing to gain this world, to earn it. It owes us nothing. The question is whether we have this gratitude, and this is interesting because it's pointing towards a cross, whether we have this gratitude to, to enter the world um, on these terms that he's talking about here. How do we deal with the corruptions or sins in our lives in a, in a way that helps us to overcome them and the difficulties that that often entails? Um, and still love a person. <coughs> Go ahead. Any questions or thoughts or responses or? Well, in some ways, I mean, it's almost like you're talking about like an like an example of a mother and a child would be easier to grasp. You know, like in the sense that a mother would, um, like you can, like for example, addiction. You know, you throw like you. You read about uh, what is that period called? 
uh, withdrawal, you know, and people mm -hmm. throw up and yeah, they yeah, yeah. feel, you know, and so you can imagine like a mother going through that and cleaning the bed and cleaning the taking the sheets and doing all the stuff, you know, and you can imagine a wife doing that too, you know, um, but the problem I have with the example is how do you make the person do it? Another, so one thing was an ultimatum, you know, like if, right. so we, uh, to stay here, you have to do this. And that's a hard thing to do because you risk losing them. But I, I mean, I honestly don't know how yep. you make someone do stop the thing and then subsequently then go through all the hard stuff it takes to let it make it stick. You know what I mean? Yeah. Tracy, let's say with your example, because it's a good one and it is an easier one in lots of ways. Um, it's, I was looking at a letter, um, I think our youngest son sent it to me when he, um, because they've got seven kids now. And in it, Jonathan was thanking me because he was recalling the things that I did as a father that at the time he didn't like. And now he finds himself. I, I remember Thomas coming to the same thing when he and Vic, his wife, said, um, they're not going to like us for doing this. But they had to do it, you know, that, because they'd be bad parents if they did. If they tried to please their kids in all things, they're dead. They're just gone. So, but let's, let's take it down a notch where it's easier. By the way, I know parents who just pull their hair out because their kids do anything they want and then throw their hands up and say, well, there's nothing I can do. That, I mean, that, you can imagine how that sits with me when I hear that sort of thing. But, um, but let's take a parent with a child. You know, you, you, let's say you're asking your children at, at seven or eight or nine to make their bed or pick, you know, and they don't do it. I mean, the easiest thing to do, I mean, this is the easiest response to it. I mean, we're talking about something amplified when you're getting to a marriage, but it starts there. Let's say you're saying to your child, you have to make your bed and pick up, and they don't. Well, you, I mean, your question, how do you make them do it? The answer to that for me is easy. You say you can't watch TV for the next two days. Consequences. Yeah, I mean, if you don't learn to deal with consequences early, what do you do in life as an adult? For God, because you're going to be facing the mirror. Screw around at your job and see how how long your boss is going to be pleased with that. I mean, this stuff is sort of insane. It's so simple, it's insane to me. The, the, well, no, it is. I mean, there are lots of parents who are enabling. They just look past it. But there are lots of parents who say, I mean, if, if, you're, if we're following Christ, we're trying to be just in mercy. We're asked to go to our kids and say, you know, it's time to make the bed. You've got to do these things. If they don't, you know, you can't do this, or um, I, I mean, we're hearing from our kids all the time. Emily, who's one of the most even-tempered women I have ever met in my life, sent one of her children to bed without dinner. My response to that was good for you. <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, because her son will know you don't do that. There are things you don't do. You I mean, you teach your kids not to do that, and you've got years on your side to help you, and if you're Hopefully, if you're doing it in the right spirit, that spirit will pass over to them. If you're past, if you're being passive or blowing up all the time, I mean, you know, your kids are going to take all that. But here, I want to go on because we're we're past my time. I'm going to pick up here in this chapter and not leave it because what Chesterton does in the Flag of the World is he takes these two. 
print the two views of the world, two ways of looking at the world, that it's all bad or it's all good, and shows that neither one of them is adequate. There's something wrong with both of them. And he goes on to examine different attitudes towards people dealing with bad things. Just what we're talking about. He looks at the suicide and the martyr because both of them are looking at bad things. The suicide is saying, the world's an awful place, I don't want to be here. The martyr is looking at the place and saying, it's an awful place, he takes, that is, he's taking a different response. He's doing what, we're ta- what he's talking about when Chesterton says, if you love something with a reason, you know, you're facing a real temptation in what you do. So he looks at the martyr, the suicide. He looks at the latitudinarians, the, the middle-of-the-road church. He looks at the Quakers. He looks at nature love. And then he, he ends saying, Christ brought a sword to divide. So he takes this what Christ did at the center of Christianity as an answer to all these problems. And then he draws his conclusion. I don't want to go there. I was really hoping we could get to uh, the paradoxes of Christianity, but I'm glad for this discussion because clearly it's a tough one. So let's pick up with um, Flag of the World and and finish with these things. The one thing that I would just say um, that here, um, the conclusion, this was in my notes and I don't have the page, but the optimist and the pessimists were both trying to prove that we fit in the world. The pessimist said it was bad. Chester said the what was the, the problem with him is that he didn't love the world the right way. And the optimist is saying everything's okay. The optimist didn't love the world in the wrong, right way. Both of them don't love as they should. They're not dealing with something. Both are trying to prove that we fit in the world. The pessimist, if we can get rid of this, it'll straighten out. The optimist was saying, everything's okay, just whitewash it and leave it alone. He's saying, if you leave it alone, it'll stagnate. It'll just, it, the corruption will remain. It's, your word is enabling. Yeah? So, when Chester didn't realize we do not, so their answer is, they're trying to prove we fit in the world. This is the whole question of respectability that we've been dealing with since Melville and Moby Dick and Faulkner in the town because we saw how many things are hidden behind respectability. Corruptions just remain. And people who do bad things hide behind it. Remember what Mink Snopes did. He used it. Montgomery Snopes used it. We've talked about this, yeah? If you guys remember. So the danger is feeling like the world is our place, we should fit into it, conform to it. Chesterton realized we don't fit in the world, and suddenly he felt at home. I was worse and better than all things. He's a sinner and a lover. Christianity dwelt on the unnaturalness of everything in the light of the supernatural. I knew why grass seemed queer and why I could feel homesick at home. Because there was something of us that was meant to feel at home here and something in us that was meant not to feel at home because our home was another place. And it's only when we look at things here in light of that other world that we can get them right. That may be a cross. We, ha- we may have to lay waste to somebody. <laughs> you know, but if we don't, 
then we're just leaving the bad where we found it. So the flag of the world is really addressing this, what he's calling this primeval loyalty that we owe, we owe the world our life before we can ever criticize it or condemn it. And so often in our pride, because we're so capable, our first response is to criticize it or want to make it all okay, to whitewash it. When our call is to change it. By the way, just to remind you, um, come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of our faithful and kindle us the fire of your love. Send forth thy spirit and we shall be created and we shall we shall renew the face of the world. That's our call to not leave things where we found them. We are asked to renew the world. How do we do that if we don't deal with awful things? We can enable, we can destroy. We can lay waste in a way that will make things better. How's that? Tracy, is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> is it? Yeah. Okay. Karen, are any questions, Mark? Karen, just... Okay. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> bad question, bad question, Mark. Yeah, I particularly... I look with... up in the sky, so you see anything? You see <laughs> yeah. any stars out there? Uh, no, no, I don't. <laughs> yeah, Ch Chesterton, he's so rich. My God, I mean, he, you know, he, he tosses this stuff up like it's nothing, but God, it's just, it's so rich. He's so, he's so, he's so at the center. He's so at the center of everything in Christianity long before he ever got there. Amazing man. He's right at the center. So he can see things that people on the side of him, that, in fact, that's, by the way, that's going to be the argument of uh, paradoxes, because you're going to say, I saw all these things. And all of them were saying that one man said Christianity is too full of joy. One man said it's too full of sorrow. One man said it's full of this. And another man said, and he said, suddenly I realized there was something wrong because they were all contradicting each other. It's a little bit like one, a tall man saying somebody's too short and a short man saying somebody's too tall. He suddenly realized that they were all revealing more about themselves than they were about Christianity. And it suddenly blew the world open to him. And I think... Chesterton, his, the, the rarity of Chesterton is the, it is, he is so at the center of things in the way that he sees things, that um, he can see things that people off of that center don't see. The, the good thing about reading him is it helps us bring, come back to that center and with renewed, with, hopefully with renewed minds and hearts. But Okay. Um, it's good to see you guys again. Um, Mark, I hope things go well with your dad and your mom. Keep an eye on her. <laughs> we don't want to lose your dad. <laughs> um, That's the hard part is, well, what do I tell the cops? I can't turn in my own mother. <laughs> just remember biblical, whatever you do. Okay, you guys. See you, see you all next week. Thank you, Dr. Bob. Bye. Bye. <laughs>